I think it is wonderful as we come together as a people of God that we work hard here in this church to saturate ourselves with the scriptures throughout our times together. We we work to sing the scriptures, we work to pray the scriptures, we certainly work to preach and teach the scriptures in every way so that we are saturated every time we're together with the scriptures because Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. We want to be sanctified. We want to be holy in practice as we are in position before Christ because of Christ. And so we open the Word of God and we study together and we listen together and we sing the Word of God together because nothing else matters except the Word of God. It centrally focuses on God Himself, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, and that's where we spend our time. And so I want us to take our Bibles this morning once again and turn in them to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We've been in chapter 1 for some time. We will be in it for some time to come. It is not a short chapter by means of verse numbers in all of the Bible. It has 80 verses, and that is a rather lengthy chapter, but also because of the content that is here. We are returning this morning to this miraculous account of God breaking His more than 400 years of silence concerning His promise to provide a Messiah to save His people from their sins. Some weeks ago, we we began to see the unfolding of the eternal purpose of God as He dispatches one of His angelic beings, an angelic being named Gabriel, as we found out, and He dispatches him to an old priest and his wife in order to give them a message from God. It was, from every human perspective, an unbelievable message, a a message that from the human perspective would not be believed. In fact, Zacharias was the name of this old priest and his wife who had been barren all of their married life, both now well beyond the physical abilities of procreation, hear a message that they were going to have a son by birth. The details of that conception and the birth are overwhelmingly, probably is an understatement, but they are overwhelmingly shocking to Zacharias. So much so that even though he is a mature, godly man, even though the text tells us that he and his wife were righteous in the sight of God, even though he has been a priest for years, trusting in the Word of God implicitly, He doesn't believe the message. He doesn't believe. And really, who can blame him? Right? For every kind of human point of view, as it's looked at at a human level, from a human perspective, at every angle, how could it be that two people, possibly nearly 80 years old, each of them, just don't have children by birth in those years. That is impossible for them. So as his faith is being stretched, and he allows his human logic to rule the day, instead of implicitly believing what God had said, he disbelieves. And because God is perfectly righteous in all that He does, in every way that He does it, Zacharias in that very moment is miraculously made deaf and mute. And he's going to remain that way until the entire time of his wife's pregnancy takes place, until eight days after the birth of his son, which is the day that they name him. It's amazing that what God has declared about he and his wife has come to pass just as God has declared it in every detail. And now where we are in Luke's gospel is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. It is the sixth month that has gone by and God once again dispatches this supernatural being. 
the angel Gabriel once again. And he goes to a small town in the region of Galilee to a young girl named Mary in order to deliver another message from God. And so we pick up the story where we left off last Lord's Day in verses 26 to 38. And I just want to read through these once again for us. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, because nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, there is no greater story to be told in all of human history than the one that we have just heard in our ears. You say, well, why, why could you say that, Pastor? How come you can make such a, a brash, even a declarative statement like that? Because this is God's redemptive plan. This is what is being declared according to the counsel of His own will in the timeless past, now being carried out in time. There is no greater story than that. There is no greater reality than God declaring according to His own will to send a Savior in the timeless past, and now it's happening. There is no greater event in all of human history than the incarnation of God to His people. The prophecies of old go all the way back to the beginning of created time concerning the one who was to come and is now being carried out in human history. And you and I here in the 21st century have a front row seat. We have been granted access by God to hear about it. And we look back at just how it all happened. The driving point in all of this is emphasized for us very clearly. It's emphasized for anyone who ever reads this text very clearly right here in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now that is a very key element for us to be reminded of because this is about the sovereignty of God at work. This entire story, everything that has taken place up to this point, even with Elizabeth and her barrenness and her ability to conceive, is all about the sovereign hand of God at work, and God emphasizes that about himself. You say, why? Why would God do that? Because what we are about to hear will hit our human logic like a lightning bolt, for which... If there was no supernatural event being spoken of here, we would all hear this and have the very same response as Zacharias. None of us would believe it. Why? Because it's so humanly unexplainable. It is so humanly undoable. 
Without the sovereign hand of God executing every detail, all we are left with is our own fallen human logic. Nothing like this has ever happened in the past, and nothing like this will ever happen again. Without the sovereign hand of God executing each and every detail, all we're left with is impossibility. It is miraculous in every way, and the only way that you and I could ever comprehend it at all is to embrace the truth that nothing is impossible with God. Let that sink into your mind this morning as you think about your own life and as you think about everything that happens in your very existence. If you, for any moment, begin to doubt or even deny the supernatural reality of God and His involvement, your human logic will take you places that you will not recover from. Nothing is impossible with God. In fact, I want to remind all of us sitting here this very morning, especially each and every one of us who have a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ by salvation, that the only reason, the only reason that you and I are here, the only reason that we have believed in Jesus Christ unto salvation of our souls is because nothing is impossible with God. The truth is that none of us, none of us had any human desire to come to God. We had no desire to believe what God says, let alone to believe that He is real or that we could know Him. And because of His grace and by His merciful hand, He drew us to Himself. And might I say, in spite of us, he drew us to himself. He drug us like a corpse out of the grave. And by means of faith, faith that he granted us to believe upon him by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, we sit here today a saved people. Hebrews 11.6 clearly tells us that reality. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he who comes to God must believe that he is. You see, you have to acknowledge the supernatural or you'll never believe. In other words, if you push God out of the picture, there is no means of faith. And there is no explanation for what we're hearing without faith And so if God is pushed out of the picture, then there is no reason to believe, listen, what the Bible declares about creation, that it happened in six days. Unless God, unless there is nothing that is impossible with God, then creation becomes a figment of our mind and of our own making and our own definition, and we come up with nonsensical ideas like evolution. There's no reason to believe in a worldwide flood out of which only eight people were saved without faith. And there is no reason to ever believe that through the death of Jesus, all who believe upon him will be saved from their own sin and be raised to new life. Unless nothing is impossible with God, If Christ is not raised from the dead, as Paul said to the Corinthians, we of all people are most to be pitied. Faith is worthless. Faith is worthless. And so God, through his servant Luke, reminds us that without him, none of this is possible. Without him, this is just some kind of story that's born in folklore that people have passed down throughout the ages and talked about at Christmas time. And it seems like it's rather beautiful in all of its floral fragrance, and yet it's not real at all if there is no God involved. And yet God reminds us here that nothing will be impossible with him.
Now, last Lord's Day, when we were here, we began to hang our thoughts on several aspects of this text that are laid out by Dr. Luke as he gives us this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first aspect was simply the plan, and we saw that back in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. God's plan of redemption is in motion in time. In the time that God created, when the fullness of time came, Gabriel is sent to the people that he needs to speak to, and now he's sent to this one woman. Gabriel does just as Gabriel has been created to do, and Gabriel standing in the presence of God, this is what Gabriel does. He goes with the message, and he goes, secondly, to the place. Verse 26 tells us he was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. He goes to Nazareth, described here as a city, not really a city at all, but really a quiet country town. There were no words in the original language for city other than polis, which was a place where people gathered and lived together. And so it's all called city, except in our mind, we have large cities here in the West. Nazareth was no such large city. It was just a group of people living in a small town, a small town off the beaten path, out in the countryside, not really on the way to anywhere. And so Gabriel goes to Nazareth to a young virgin girl named Mary. She happens to be engaged to a man named Joseph. And she too, like Joseph, is a descendant of David. Those facts are essentially all that we know of her. That is all that God gives us about this young woman. We are not given any other descriptive terms about her. All we are told is that she is a virgin. She is named Mary. She is engaged, and her heritage is part of the line of David. That is all we are given. And quite possibly, just by my own sanctified speculation as I read through this text and think about it, quite possibly God chose only to give that much about her simply because God knows the heart of man in his omniscient understanding of all things. He knew that even with only that information, mankind would invent a system of religion that would worship her. The man through the evil one spinning the false doctrine of Mariolatry, would present a gospel of Mary worship, which is a false gospel. The idea that she is the one who must direct your prayers, if God is to hear your prayers, pray to Mary, for Mary is the one who directs your prayers to Jesus if you want Jesus to hear them. Everything must go through her. In fact, she is the co-redeemer of all people that will ever be redeemed, without her no one can receive the grace of God because according to the false system of Roman Catholicism, she is the dispenser of grace. Even though Gabriel is very clear in his words here from God, that she is declared here as a receiver of grace. A receiver of grace. And so Gabriel begins then to make his pronouncement to her. We see the plan, we've seen the place, we know the person. This is the pronouncement. This is where we left off last Lord's Day in the fourth aspect, the pronouncement. And I'll just say at the outset, we're not even going to get through the pronouncement fully this morning in light of that because there's so much here in it. The pronouncement, verse 28 to 33, And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will receive, or you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
you notice that when Gabriel made the announcement to her, that what troubled Mary more than being in the presence of this supernatural being was that in some way, beyond her own understanding, she was hearing that she had been shown the grace of God. You say, how do we know that? How do we know that she was the receiver of grace and not the dispenser of grace? Because Gabriel says to her, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And for her to have grace shown to her, for her to be the recipient of grace was beyond her mind, and she understood that it had to be that way. It had to be that she was a receiver of grace. The Lord had to be with her. Why? For her to receive grace, because she's just like all of us. She was an unworthy sinner. In fact, we don't often think of it this way, but people who receive grace are all grouped under one word, sinner. We're all sinners. If you're not a sinner, then you don't need grace. If you're not someone who is caught into trespasses and sins, if you're not dead in your trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 said, then you don't need grace. But the Word of God tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And it was that very fact that she was the recipient of God's grace. It was that very fact that troubled her more than anything else she heard or will hear. Notice verse 29, she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. In other words, this is something for which she had no earthly context in her little short life. Remember, she's only a teen girl. She hadn't lived very long. It wasn't that something in her life seemed to spring something by which she could equate all of this to for her short life, and in fact for centuries before. No one had ever heard this kind of greeting from anyone, let alone from a being that is supernatural. It wasn't Gabriel that frightened her to the core. It was what he said to her. In fact, notice the text says she kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. In other words, she knew of no one in her short history of life. She had heard of no one talking to any other person for which this greeting might have been used. It was a shocking statement. It was a troublesome statement. Why? Because Mary knew what all of us inherently know about ourselves. Mary knew she didn't deserve God's grace. Just like you and I, we know we don't deserve God's grace. Several of you came up to me after last week and talking about Zacharias and talking about the previous things as you were looking forward into this text and you were saying, yes, but Mary questions, questions what's going, going on and what's the difference between Zacharias and her. Zacharias feared just being in the presence of a supernatural being. But what caused greater awe-struck trembling to the soul than that was the fact that she was shown grace by God. It's a frightening thing to be in the presence of a supernatural being. In fact, Gabriel will say that a little later. Listen, don't fear. And yet what frightened her more than that was the fact of what he said. You have been shown grace by God. As I was studying that this week, the hymn writer who wrote the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, came to my mind. I looked it up. I pulled off my hymn, hymn book that I have in my office to look up who wrote that. It was Julia Johnson. 
I don't know who she is, but she certainly internalized the reality of being a recipient of grace in the words of this song. Just listen to the first stanza. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there were there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. She got it right. That's what Mary was pondering. Why? Because like us, she would surely have sinned already in that day. Mary certainly, even in her life, she would have had sinful thoughts. In fact, she might have woken up and even spoken a sinful word to one of her parents. She knew her sin, and just like we do, that is why she will say in verse 47, Notice, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary knew she needed a Savior. She knew she needed the hand of grace upon her life. She knew that she needed this one whom he was speaking about. She knew that she wasn't a co-redeemer. I think that's why God didn't have Luke write that she was righteous in God's sight, like he wrote about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Why? Because just that statement alone about her says that she is because of Christ. She knew she needed a Savior. Realizing that she didn't deserve grace is a sign of her God-given righteousness. Why? Because faith comes through grace. You are saved by grace through faith, it says in Ephesians 2.8. It is through faith that the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to us. In other words, it is by grace through faith that God's righteousness is imputed to us, the hell-bound sinner. And it is through faith that the imputed righteousness of Christ saves us from our sin. Is it any wonder that grace being on Mary's mind that through that understanding of a grace that she's unable to, to keep that from her mind. She is just so shocked by that reality. Doesn't say, oh yeah, she thought about that and moved on. Oh gee, those were interesting words. Oh, let, let me hear this message that you've come to say no. It says she was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled at that. She continued to ponder the statement. Oh, I was thinking about this, beloved. Listen, that, I was thinking, oh, that that would be our continual state of mind. Oh, that when we understand and realize the marvelous grace that we've been shown by Christ, that that would be continually on our mind, that that would be in the constant and worshipful amazement before God as we stand before Him, that He has shown us His grace. Why? Simply because the Lord is with us. He is with us. Notice that she's so shocked by this statement that Gabriel breaks in once again with the miraculous news. Angel said to her, verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Don't be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. It isn't as if there's no sense of fear when a supernatural being appears in your kitchen. It's not as if there isn't any trembling any time an angel is present. Human trembling is the natural response. You look at all that took place throughout the Scriptures when some angelic being was there or the theophany of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was there. 
The natural response was fearfulness. Even Isaiah fell on his face as a dead man. Sinful fallenness always trembles when righteousness is there. Sinful fallenness always is fearful. And so Gabriel says to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God's favor is with you. God's favor is with you. In other words, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to to bring judgment upon you, Mary. I'm here to bring good news to you. Now, the question always comes up, why Mary? Why Mary? Maybe, maybe you've never asked that. You, maybe you should. I mean, if she wasn't somehow special, if Mary wasn't somehow special, as you say, the text clearly indicates that she wasn't somehow special, then why her? Well, I think there's only one suitable answer to that question. And the only suitable answer is this, because God chooses whom He chooses. The only suitable answer to the sovereign hand of God through all of this, and God's message, and the reality of the impossible reality of God accomplishing all things, because nothing will be impossible with God, is the fact that God elects who He elects. Mary isn't special in some way that God says, oh, hey, I'll use Mary because she'll really do the work for me. Mary's a special person. No, Mary is only chosen because God chooses to choose her. That's it. No one deserves his grace. None of us sitting here this morning or sitting here in our salvation state present before God in righteousness of Christ, because somehow, in some way, we deserve it. We didn't deserve any of it. It was all because of God's grace, and Mary is the same way. She certainly didn't deserve such a blessing that God is bestowing upon her. She was a sinner just like us. But God, out of His grace, chose to use her in this way. One preacher rightly said it this way, this isn't so much about Mary's spiritual life as it is about God's elective choice. I love that. This isn't so much about Mary as it is about God. God wants us to know that His grace comes to those who do not deserve it. In other words, like verse 37 says, this is all about Him. This is all about His sovereignty. This is all about His omniscience. This is all about His omnipresence. This is all about God being the one who's accomplishing it all. It is God's plan. It is God's plan being carried out according to God's chosen will. It is being carried out according to how God chooses to carry out the plan through God's chosen person so that we see God's sovereign work at hand. Up to this point, Mary doesn't even know what the greater news is. All she knows is she's there in her little dwelling place, and here's this supernatural being that comes, and he says, you're favored by God. What? She can't get that out of her mind. And so Gabriel continues his pronouncement. And you notice what he says, behold, here you go, pay attention, Mary. Listen, okay, I understand you're shocked that God would show grace to you. In fact, as an angel, I'm shocked at that because angels long to look. They look down at salvation and go, what are you doing, God? So there's in some sense, we could even say that Gabriel's a little shocked that God would dispatch him and say, okay, go tell this person this. What? All the created beings before when we were in heaven and a third of them got swept away with the evil one, there was no grace for them. Here you are showing this fallen creature your grace. Okay, I'm doing what I'm told to do. I'm not thinking anything less of you, God. I'm going. Gabriel goes. Mary shocked at the state. God's elective choice is being carried out. And so Gabriel says to her, listen, behold, pay attention to this. You will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. 
right after the word son, everything else that comes after that is descriptive of the son. And I want us to be aware that what Gabriel says, as it is recorded here in verse 31, is to be heard almost as if it was a commanded declaration. Uh, These aren't imperative verbs that that are used in Greek. They're future indicatives. These things will come about, but it's said in such a way as if it's a commanded declarative. You will do this. This will happen. In other words, this is not incidental information that's being given to her. It's not, hey, you know, if you kind of get things right in your heart, this is going to come about. No, this is something that's unavoidable with her. This is an unavoidable declaration from God himself. And I think having that understanding helps us grasp the difference, as I mentioned earlier, between the question that she asks of Gabriel in verse 34 as we compare it with the unbelieving response of Zacharias in verse 18. Mary is responding to the commanded declaration of this statement. She's not doubting that she could have a child. She's not doubting in any kind of way, being a woman, being a young woman, that she could give birth to a child. There is no doubt in her mind about that. She's simply asking how to get it accomplished in her current state that she's in as a virgin. In other words, from a human perspective, she's told that she's going to serve God in a way that no human being has ever been asked or told to serve God as a virgin to give birth. I'm I'm willing to serve the Lord. She says that down in verse 38. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me. According to your word, I I just want to serve, but how how am I supposed to serve in that way? I'm a virgin. How's that going to happen? Virgins don't give birth. It wasn't questioning her ability. That's what Zacharias was questioning, his ability. Listen, that ain't going to happen. I'm an old guy. My wife's not going to have a son. She's barren. Old people don't have kids. Mary's not doing that. Mary knows it can be accomplished. She's just wondering as a virgin how a virgin's going to give birth. In fact, no one would ever believe that she had miraculously conceived this child unless they were told by God. No one. You say, really? Yeah, even Joseph, her betrothed to be husband, Joseph, as Matthew 1, verses 19 through 21 tells us, He thought it best to just put her away quietly, to hide her secretly and put her aside. Why? Because according to Jewish law, she would have been an adulterer. She would have been someone who now was pregnant out of wedlock, and that only could happen if she committed some kind of adultery. And the penalty for adultery, at least according to the Mosaic law, was death. Even though during the time when Jesus was on earth, there was a custom, at least at the time, that they weren't killing them, they were just divorcing them. In fact, remember in John chapter 8, when we were studying through the Gospel of John, the Pharisees brought the woman found caught in adultery to Jesus? I mean, this woman's caught in the very act, it says in that text. Here she is, she is in the act of committing adultery, they bring her out in some kind of way to catch Jesus because they want to catch Jesus disregarding the law of Moses. And Jesus says to them, okay, you want to apply the law in that strictest sense for the sin of this woman? You better first apply it to yourself. You without sin cast the first stone. Because that's how it had to happen. Whoever caught the offense was the one who cast the first stone of judgment. I can't say definitively what Mary was thinking in totality, but it certainly is quite possible that she thought perhaps it would happen when she and Joseph were living as husband and wife together. Maybe she thought that. I don't don't know that for sure, but one thing is for sure. The stigma of Jesus being 
born out of wedlock, at least in the eyes of the surrounding community and those even further down in Jerusalem, followed Jesus throughout his ministry. In other words, he was always thought as somebody who was born illegitimate. The Pharisees said to him in John 8, 41, we were not born of fornication, implying, but you were. So how would this be accomplished? Virgins don't have children. The only way to have children is by means of the seed of a man and the womb of a woman. And since she had never been with a man, how could this be? How could this be? Well, it can't. It can only be because of what? How could this be? Well, the only answer is right here in the text for us. Nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, what had been prophesied back hundreds of years before would come to pass. What Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9 was actually coming to fruition. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is right here before us. Behold, a virgin shall be with a child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. God with us. This is exactly what Gabriel is telling her. Behold, you're going to become pregnant and you're going to have a son. And then Luke diligently lists six characteristics about the son to establish who he is and what he's coming to do. Six characteristics about the son. This is where all my intent to get finished in one moment is gone. Let me just list them for you. He lists his name, Jesus. We see that. He lists his perfect righteousness. He is great. He lists his deity. He is the son of the most high. He tells us about his rulership, the throne of David. He tells us about his resurrection. He will reign forever. And he tells us about his glorification of his kingdom. There will be no And these are the six characteristics about the Son that we need to look at. Let's begin to take these one by one so that our hearts are filled with wonder and amazement at who this is that God has promised to come so that we are as amazed as Mary is at the grace of God for each of us. I'll just give us the first one this morning because we're going to have communion, and then we'll get to the rest next Lord's Day. But notice His name, His name, a name that flows off our lips so easily, and yet oftentimes we don't understand what it means. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, for following the flow of the narrative, Mary is still pondering all that's going on. She's pondering what's about to happen. She's still struck by the fact that she has been shown the grace of God, that she has been granted grace by God, even though she is a sinner like all around her. And now she's told what is about to happen. She isn't told how yet. That doesn't come till later after her question. She will be told that, but right now she's not. All she's told, first of all, is his name. The name of this child will be called Jesus. Notice Luke doesn't tell us why he's called Jesus. He just says, and you shall name him Jesus. Doesn't tell us why. Why the name Jesus? Why wouldn't he be called George? Why wouldn't he be called something else? Why wouldn't he be called Joseph? Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew does. Matthew's gospel does. If I go back for a moment to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Right? Remember I said nobody's going to believe this unless, unless God tells them directly. Well, here's Joseph when he had considered this, what? Wanting to not disgrace her and put her away secretly, verse 19 says. 
Verse 20, it said, but when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. I wonder what angel that was. Something tells me in my sanctified speculation that that was probably Gabriel. Go tell Joseph this. He's, he's about to do what sinners do. He's going to make some illogical decision. Go, go and tell Joseph this. The angel appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Why? Why do we name him that? Because it is he who will save his people from their sins. There's why. Right here in Matthew's gospel, God gives us the answer to why he is named Jesus. He is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In other words, his name means the one through whom Yahweh brings salvation. This is the one through whom Yahweh God brings salvation. The Old, Nest, the Old Testament name, Yeshua. That's his name, Yeshua. So right here, in the name of this one to come, think of it, is the gospel. Right here in the name of Jesus is the gospel. The name of Jesus tells us that sinners need the saving grace of God. The name of Jesus tells us that you and I as sinners need Jesus because in Jesus, the grace of God is expressed to us. He saves. In the name of Jesus, His name tells us that He will save those whom He has sovereignly chosen. He will save His people. And in his name, it even tells us why we need saving. He will save his people from their sin. It was sin that separated us from God. The wages of sin is death, Paul said in Romans. Without faith in Jesus Christ, we remain under the rightful wrath of God to come. One day that wrath will come. One day that wrath will descend upon all who refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ. It will come in its full force, and only those who have believed in Jesus Christ will be saved. Well, but this is the very reason we celebrate communion. This is the very reason... You and I can even sit here this morning and even fathom the reality of taking part in what communion means. The name Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. The name Yeshua, Jesus. For it is in Him that we see the saving grace of God on display. It is in Him that we see the sovereign act of God's election on display. It's in Him that we see the saving reality of protection from our sin, the forgiveness that we all need. Jesus. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. And you will name him Jesus. This is what you will do. This is what will happen to you. And this is what he will be called. You see, we celebrate communion because it was through the incarnation of God coming to earth as a man, the man Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He was buried and rose again on the third day so that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and all who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. 
That's what's in the name of Jesus. Salvation, the gospel. The best that we've ever known. Freedom from sin. Freedom from a life of remaining under wrath. Why? 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 Why would that happen? Because nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And so God dispatches his son. And his son comes and pays the ultimate penalty so that we might have life in him. There's five other aspects about him that we need to see. (laughs) We don't have any time for that today. Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing how fast time flies. Maybe we should. Maybe we should just spend the next two and a half hours going through these. But you're sovereign over even that. You're a God who orchestrates every detail of every moment. We might not be overwhelmed, but understand just who you are and all that you've done for us. Lord, it's no mistake or surprise to any of us that this day is orchestrated in such a way that we would be (coughs) celebrating communion together in a text such as this. Not a text about your death, not a text about your resurrection, not even a text about your perfect life as we see it played out and lived out through the entire gospel, but a text simply about your coming. And yet even your coming, all the aspects of the gospel are there. Everything about us, about the condition of our soul without you, the need for grace, the reminder of all that we've been given, the reality of your sovereign hand to choose, and all that will be accomplished by Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you that we've had a glimpse into that this morning, that our hearts can resonate with the truth that's there. Were it not for you telling us that nothing's impossible with you, we may go away from this going, yeah, nice story. But I don't know if I believe it. And yet because it's of you, because it reflects your very nature and character, we can go away from this in faith. Walking by faith, believing every detail, and knowing that when we believe what you've said concerning your son, we have life in him. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for the joy that floods our heart because of it. May you be fully glorified by us and through us, all for the sake of the glorification of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.